0: Many countries in the developing world are undergoing a technological revolution, which is shaping how they tackle problems around infrastructure and health and education and finance. Young people are at the forefront of developing solutions to the problems in this developing world. And these young people are creating technology and businesses to foster innovation and growth. Countries in the Middle East are no exception to this. Despite the difficulties that the region faces, such as the wars in Syria and Yemen, its populations are well-informed, they're plugged in, and they're using technology to build the future of their societies. In the book Startup Rising, published in 2013, Washington, D.C. and New York City-based entrepreneur and venture investor Chris Schrader wrote about how the rest of the world, especially the West, needed to wake up to what was happening in the Middle East. In today's episode, Chris talks to Carl Mungazi about what he has seen through his travels in the Middle East. He discusses the successes and the challenges faced by the entrepreneurs who shared their stories with him, and what this means for those watching in the West.
1: So, Chris, thanks. thank you for joining us today on um, Essay Daily. Great to be with you. Now, you've written a book called Startup Rising, which basically details what you called the revolution shaping the Middle East. As a starting point, could you give us a brief history of how the tech scene in the Middle East has come to be where it is now?
2: It's wonderful to be with you, by the way, so thank you for that. The tech scene came about in the Middle East as it's come about all across the world. And I think this is one of the things particularly we in the West don't appreciate because we have such one narrative about the Middle East, which obviously has its basis in truth. It's a tough neighborhood. There are many, many difficult things going on. And what this story really pushes us to think about is twofold. One, there's more than one story going on everywhere. And so we need to be able to hold often conflicting truths at the same time as we really understand the complexity and nuance of any place. But secondly, the story of our times, in some respects the stories of the 21st century, is increasing near universal access to software and broadband capacity, and I can't tell you what Syria is going to look like in a year, but I can tell you with 100% certainty that by the end of this decade, 70% of people around the world and in the Middle East, and in fact, it's even larger already in parts of the Middle East, are going to have smart devices, and smart devices, of course, aren't just better feature phones, they are, in fact, computing capacity of, of unimaginable power in the hands of human beings everywhere in the world. And what that means is that you can see everybody else, you can connect with everyone else, you can collaborate on all sorts of things, you've got essentially all of human knowledge at your fingertips essentially for free, and you can innovate and solve problems bottom up in a way that we could only talk about even four or five years ago. And so, in many respects, the core answer to your question is why not the Middle East since we all know and accept it's happening elsewhere. We know it's happening in China and India. Many of us who travel, some know it's happening in Southeast Asia, in Latin America. Now Mark Zuckerberg visits Africa, so everyone talks about Africa as the digital continent. So why would it be any different in the Middle East? And I think that's something that we really need to grasp and understand because it's got very powerful and hopeful ramifications.
1: Now, you yourself had a company, I think, um, that you started and sold yourselves, and you also are now investing in other companies. So as an investor, what things excite you about what is happening in the Middle East?
2: As an investor, with a hard-nosed analysis, you know, with the hopes of it, asset would be successful and, of course, you make money overall. What excites me is something macro and something micro. The macro is what we just talked about, which is there is rising access to technology, which means people are innovating and solving big problems with greater e- efficacy and more cost efficiently. I mean, as you know, the cost of reaching customers now is a fraction of what it used to be. The cost of building a company requires often fewer people in the earlier stages than ever did before. And in these markets, and in the Middle East in particular, you could get world-class software engineers at a tenth of the price or a third of the price of what it would be in, say, Silicon Valley. And so you know that this isn't going back. You know there's going to be more technology, more people with it, more people with the skills to do amazing things with it. And with this has been coming, subsequently and in parallel, a greater rises of economies and middle classes. And these are consumer classes. These are people who are looking to buy things now because they can. They're looking to move things now because they can. They're looking to take friction out of their lives because they can. And that's just, you know, you can sort of just look out three to five years and say, there's a real convergence here of economic opportunity drive driven by these cost-effective and powerful tools to solve problems. That's a very exciting place to look at. At the micro level, it really always is about, particularly in early stage investing, it's about the caliber and quality of the entrepreneurs. And what I've seen from the beginning is just some astounding, hard-charging, steely-eyed entrepreneurs across the Middle East because entrepreneurship has been sine qua non of the Middle East for thousands of years. But with these technological tools, they really are looking to solve problems which are not just local-local, but can expand regionally and perhaps beyond. Uh, Last week, Amazon bought Souq.com, which is the largest e-commerce player in the Arab world for almost $700 million. And they did that because they knew they had great market coming, great talent in the team that they acquired, unbelievable understanding of the regional dynamics. Amazon usually doesn't buy anybody. They usually just go in and build. But they made a decision here because of the talent and the market capabilities that was available to them. So as an investor, I realized that there's going to be more, not less than this, that a company like Soup, by the way, when it's successful, is going to spin off other great entrepreneurs and entrepreneur opportunities going forward and that we're in a very interesting opportunity to look at these entrepreneurs and invest in them, knowing that the next five years is gonna be not only different, but more encouraging in this area than the last five years so that's the way I look at it.
1: So um, in your book um, you traveled to Jordan to Lebanon to Iran to Iraq and you really spoke to people there building things using technology and other things and I guess my question is which countries would you say are the leading lights in the tech scene which countries are pushing innovation and boundaries in the region?
2: There's an important lesson in my observation on your question which is By definition, if technology is almost universally accessed, talent will rise anywhere because now it has access to education and tools to engage with people and to reach customers than ever before. And so at one level, you could go to almost any country, not only the Middle East, but anywhere in the world and see bottom up. Interesting and perhaps uh, lucrative opportunities for companies that arise in this way. Having said that, and for all my enthusiasm of the rise of the bottom up, top down matters. Rule of law matters. The ecosystem to be able to freely move goods, ideas, people, capital. To be able to make sure that if you invest, you can get that money out that there is a framework by which entrepreneurship is really enthusiastically embraced. And it does not cease to amaze me that around the world, not just in the Middle East, how often government institutions, big businesses and so on, look at this phenomenon as almost a cute sideshow. It's sort of a little thing that's uh, to be kind of supported. The young people seem enthusiastic about it. Let's do a ribbon-cutting exercise and not understand that very proactive activity can actually make a huge, huge difference in making these phenomena move faster. So specifically to your question, I really don't believe there's anyone in the time zone yet, specifically in the Middle East, but maybe anywhere in emerging growth markets than the UAE and Dubai in particular. They have become very proactive in aggressively moving on rule of law to make it easier to start companies. And as importantly, they just passed the first bankruptcy law in the Middle East. And, you know, entrepreneurs don't start a company because they've got good bankruptcy laws, but for investors and for when things go south, the signal being sent that if a company doesn't work out, you have a process by which to clean it up, take your learning and build and move a new one is a very, very powerful thing. The very week or within a couple of weeks that the United States started pushing back on opening up more H-1B visas, which were the visas that help attract some of the best talent around the world to come to America, just as we look like we're retrenching on being a catcher's mitt effectively for talent, the UAE announced a talent visa where they're literally encouraging any great scientists and technologists to be able to come and join that country in a very, very powerful and quick and efficient way. They're effectively giving the signal, we want the best of the best to come come here to help build something not only interesting for the UAE, but something that could be very powerful for the region and, I think, Africa and beyond. And so, this matters a ton, and I hope other people are following suit in their own way, right? It's not that they're going to replicate a model because every country and culture is different. But there are some basic understandings that if you get rule of law right, if you take the medium and long-term investment to get education right, you can have something very powerful happening. It's way too early to predict, and Saudi Arabia is a very complicated country. But I have to tell you, it is fascinating to watch the new generation rise there and have the government talk about ways of making business generally, but entrepreneurship and technology in particular, better accessible. And so we'll have to see if that comes to fruition, but if you start talking about the Gulf as really being open to this, I believe that other countries will follow. Jordan historically had been pretty supportive to this. It's a small country, but they have outstanding softwares. They're really software engineers. I mean, there really is a multiplier effect and success breeds success. And so I look at the UAE and Dubai as a great thing. I look at Saudi Arabia with hope. I I respect Jordan and I just hope that others begin to follow suit on their terms and in their own way uh, because what they will unleash will be very powerful.
1: So against the backdrop you've kind of outlined for us now if let's say I'm an engineer software engineer in the Middle East what kind of opportunities have been opened up as a result of all this change happening?
2: Every company you know now Carl is becoming a software company and it's it's sometimes it's hard to get our minds around this but if you you know go buy a cup of coffee in a Starbucks or go look under the hood of your car and these are massive computing exercises overall so what's so interesting is that the skills and capabilities that are required to do a tech-based startup in terms of, of what we in the states call steam science technology engineering arts which is very important a sense of creativity and design and mathematics these are skills which are required not just for tech startups, but this is going to be required for almost anything in the 21st century, at least in some regard. And so the answer to your question is, is the opportunities are, are everywhere. If your nature is not to be an entrepreneur, but you'd like to be in a more st- established enterprise, the big companies that I know over there are looking all the time for software engineers. They're looking for now you know, people who've got great understanding of machine learning and data analysis, data scientists and that kind of a thing. But at the same time, the early stage companies are always looking for this and one of the biggest challenges to find not only young people who have the skills from say a university setting but have the track record experience and pattern recognition of doing it, you know, the first time. And that's another reason why I think Soup.com is such a big deal because when Soup.com has all these wonderful software engineers and, and salespeople and a total operation in e-commerce, now you've got a whole generation of people, like 3,000 people who have seen how this is done and they see how they can apply technical skill in a way to build and scale a company. And we'll just see more and more of that for people who want to seek it out and have the skills and are willing to develop the skills to be able to participate in it.
1: So you mentioned that Jordan has a number of good and out- outstanding engineers. What is the education like in the region? How are people learning to code and learning about tech? Are they doing it through the internet purely or are there schools or bootcamps that are kind of burgeoning there?
2: One has to be a little bit careful, and I do this all the time, you know, talking about the Middle East as if it is one thing, in the same way we Americans have this proclivity of calling Africa one thing, which is, you know, is over 50 countries with incredible diversity, and so is the case in the Middle East. And so different countries and different cities have different elements of what they wrestle in, you know, education and training the kids. What I can say, a couple of observations from a general perspective, there's actually a shocking amount of money spent on a per capita basis on in aggregate across the Middle East for education. And yet the results by almost any monitoring organization, the World Bank and whatever, show the, the outcomes are actually very, very disturbing, frankly, and, and unfortunate. And some of it is that often you'll find classrooms which are way too large I and mean, literally in Cairo and, and uh, Amman have been to Schools where you'll have 60, 70 kids in a class. The teaching is very rote learning and taught to a test. And it's not necessarily about application, what to do with it. But I think even more important, uh, teachers, by the way, are not necessarily well paid. I think, But I think more important in a way is often, not always, but often in education systems, kids are not taught to be critical thinkers. And one of the great things and potentials in unleashing entrepreneurship and technology is the ability to tinker, is the ability to ask questions and, and not get stuck in a rigid way of thinking about them, but ask effectively, what if? What would if we did this instead of that because it's different. And that translates not only into a spirit of thinking new about your company. It's about how you think new about your country. It's about how you think new about problem solving and what kinds of skills that you require. And so this is a challenge and it remains a challenge. And in it, on the face of it, it's a challenge that, that can take a lot of time. And particularly, you know, people my age and older think it's a generational problem to think. The beauty though, and which gives me hope, is uh, that technology can complement this in a way. So to your question, because everyone has got effectively their their hands on the entire world and the Internet, I run into kids all over the world who are taking uh, courses from around the world online to better what they're doing. It could be anything from Khan Academy to Coursera, taking courses from MIT or what have you, or meeting young people like you in your backyard who are wrestling with issues, uh, reading blogs that people are writing in the backyard who are teaching each other. And it can become a very powerful, accretive thing. And all of a sudden, you see a bunch of young kids who really are unbelievably talented in engineering, and they're effectively self-taught. And that's available to us in a way we couldn't talk about. I mean, I'll give you a minor example. There's a really wonderful startup that came out of Cairo, Egypt called NAFAM. And in Egypt, there's a very strict curriculum that's taught in regular schools, but supplemental education tutoring and that kind of thing is a big business because people want to get better education than uh, what is offered often in the daily structure. And uh, as you can imagine, as in most places in the world, the rich take care of their own. They're able to afford tutors, but the vast majority of people have nowhere to turn. So the founders of NAFHAM said that's ridiculous, and everyone's got uh, at least a mobile device. A lot of people have a smart device. We should be able to get supplemental education to them to help move their way forward. So they built what was similar a little bit to Khan Academy in Arabic but really tied very specifically to the curriculum of the Egyptian schools. Mathematics, reading, writing, that kind of stuff. Anyhow, within two years, 30,000 or more videos were uploaded and over 80 wow. million classes have been viewed. 80 million classes have been wow. viewed. Mostly in Egypt, though obviously other places in the Arab world, and they're going to be turning to other curricula in other countries. And, you know, does that solve the problem? No, of course not. But is that offering something interesting and hopeful that we can talk about today that we could not talk about if you and I were together even three years ago? Absolutely. So work has to, be hap- has to happen at the traditional level. Schools have to get better and most countries have a pretty good idea of what they need to do. It really is about political leadership and courage to make that happen. But in the short term, the supplemental aspect and people teaching themselves is yet one more piece of evidence of how young people just simply aren't waiting for anyone to give them permission for anything. They're literally just doing what they can to get the skills and capabilities to build what it is that they want to build.
1: In your book, you said the ability to access the internet and connect with other people was helping to destroy things like Wasta in the Middle East, such as Lebanon. Can you explain to us what Wasta is and how it's being disrupted by technology?
2: Yeah, I'm sitting in Washington, D.C., so everyone here should know what Wasta is in their own form. Wasta is a Lebanese-Arabic word, and and, i really first heard it when I was uh, writing the book and everyone laughed at me for not knowing it because it's a very well-known concept, which is effectively, who do you know? Like, what does it take for you to get something done? It's because you know somebody who can get help you get the thing done. And and that's life anywhere. But where WASTA becomes cancerous is that it can take a lot of incentive about one's ability to really think they can succeed because effectively they think the system is rigged against you. So imagine if you're working for a decent sized company and you're working, you know, as hard as you possibly can, you're doing very well, you're looking for that promotion, but there's some guy on top of you that, you know, his uncle is best friends with the CEO, and so he's protected, quote unquote, by WASTA. And and you're not gonna be able to move up because the system is gonna keep you structurally down. And what ends up happening is, you know, a lot of time people, even young people, sort of give up. They're like, this is the way the game is played. I can't change it, so I'll find my own WASTA. And it becomes really really like a cancer. I mean, it really just sort of uh, is a malignancy within an organization for it to reach the potential that it could reach. So wonderful, remarkable, really a hero in many ways of the Middle East is a man named Fadi Gondor. And Fadi is actually Jordanian-Lebanese. He's on the board of the AUB right now. But he built one of the largest logistics company on Earth, and definitely the largest one in the Arab world in Africa called Aramex, which actually went was the first Arab company to go public on the NASDAQ in America. And and really, in a way, you could say it was the first unicorn uh, many years ago, because it was very successful and very large. Fadi also has become really one of the go-to guys and a leader in the uh, venture capital space and the modern mentoring space overall, so he really Understands both the old worlds and the new worlds uh, profoundly. And he was the one, he was one of my two favorite quotes in the book. He said, There's no WASTA in the internet. And what he meant was, I think, really two things. One is because of technology, you can move so quickly that by the time you've grown and been successful, you're, you're there before WASTA may come in and try to affect you or slow you down in any ways. You just can actually outpace it. But secondly, I think because so much information is online about people and their credentials and their criteria and the work that they've done, it's hard to hide. I mean either you perform or you don't. There there are when I first came to the Middle East, LinkedIn didn't even have an office there or Ali Matur was just opening it. And there were already something like six or seven million Arabs on LinkedIn to be there. Now it's you know, it's fold that. But the point is you can't cheat on LinkedIn you can lie on LinkedIn, I suppose, but you'll get out it in, in LinkedIn you talk <laughs> yeah. about who you are. And there's no Wasta in that. It's it's not who you know, it is it is who you are and what you've done and this is your track record and that, those, that combination of phenomenon, again, I think is hopeful about how things can can get better and sort of circumvent what is a human nature issue in Wasta, but need not be a dominant one.
1: Yeah. And uh, one of the things I liked when I was looking into your work and your writings was that you, you gave so many examples from different parts of the, of the Middle East about companies doing different things. Now, in terms of what has been created, would you say they are mostly clones of what's worked well in the west or are they creating things that are unique more to them the East?
2: there's a uh, the pejorative word you often hear in america is what they call copycats which is effectively take something that's worked in the west and just do it maybe in language or something and i, do, I don't like that word because i think it's pejorative and i think it misunderstands the dynamics of these markets and in fact in the book i call them improvisers not merely uh, copycats or clones because When a market is rising into technology and and into new things, uh, these are rel- One, these are very relatively early days. There are people who are unsure about it. They don't quite, they're in the early stage of adoption. I remember one of the great entrepreneurs and now investors in the region, Sami Tukan, who started a company called Maktub, which in many ways was like the Yahoo of the Middle East, though it was much more than that. It was highly sensitive, not just translation, but very sensitive to a lot of cultural norms and how people interact and use things. And so it was much more than that, but in any event, his company was bought for you know over $170 million by uh, Yahoo itself. And it was a really lightning bolt in the ecosystem some years ago, because it was one of the first exits to a, a tech company like that. But he, w- he would point out to me, he said, you know, we talk about copycats being a bad thing. But ima- imagine being in 2006, and a young college kid comes home to his parents and say, Mom, I'm dropping out of school. I have this great idea for a social network I'm going to call Facebook. And it's going to be worth billions of dollars and I'm just gonna stop in my life and I'm gonna do that and I mean his parents would have been what are you talking about uh, his school would have mocked him uh, his other students probably would have thought he was crazy I mean you, you need evidence that these things work in order to make it have success breed success and so that's why a is so important and that's why soup.com which also you can make an argument it's just simply an e commerce player though they do many things which are highly focused and understood to the market But all of a sudden people look at these and they say, this can really happen here and therefore I wanna take advantage of new technologies and make very powerful things happen beyond that. So I really think there are two important things to think about, which is one, in rising markets, it is natural in the early days for people to take things that have been successful elsewhere and apply them in unique ways at home because the market opportunity is available to it. It can be very interesting. Investors who are conservative can look at it and say, wow, I do get it. You know, I really do like Yahoo when I'm America. There's no reason on earth why I can't do email and content here in the Arab world. I get it. It's a small investment. I bet you it could work. And then success breeds success. You have that element of it. But the second thing is... It is effectively the foundation of what will happen with newer technology. So today, as an instance, one of my favorite early stage companies, very risky because of the nature of what she's doing. But Ola Dudan Doudin is, uh, has what is one of the fastest moving Bitcoin companies in the Arab world and you know some people say well she's the coinbase of the Arab world and they, they completely miss the point they miss that that an entrepreneur is taking new technology solving big problems for a market that is hungry for efficacy and honesty and transparency and doing transactions and moving money and she's going to apply it in that context and from that I have no doubt if it's successful other really interesting blockchain applications will come and I think over time we're gonna be looking at places like the Middle East as we look in other markets and say, these are now global software competitors, right? Uh, we don't blanch at the idea that Waze came from Israel, but in point of fact, if we were having this conversation 15 or 20 years ago, we never would have guessed that, that any other ecosystem was making globally competitive software. So it's the perfect staging. It makes perfect sense for the market. It's very remunerative for the entrepreneurs who are trying to reach big markets with economics. And it's the foundation for leveraging new technology to have new applications for problem solving within one's region, perhaps emerging market to emerging market, and then globally.
1: So in your answer just now, you use the term improvisers, and in your book, you also use the term to describe different companies in the region. Can you explain the three terms that you use to kind of say, this company is doing this, and that company is doing that?
2: You know, uh, book publishers require you to bucket things. And so you know, it takes a little bit of the nuance out and there's there's such a wide variation yes. of what opportunities are kind of be created. But at the time of the book, and I would probably do it similarly with maybe a new bucket today, I did break down the kinds of companies I was seeing as you described them. Improvisers are not unlike, you know, the companies we've just been talking about, those first pioneers within an ecosystem who are leveraging capabilities from elsewhere and doing them in an application at home. The global players suggest that because internet interactive technology is so easily accessible, you can actually be global and international day one. And so, and I see this in America too, by the way, where young entrepreneurs who would have said four or five years, 10 years ago for sure, and whose advisors would say, just focus on your your near market, like build a company in San Francisco, then you can figure out the rest of the country. Don't think about international, yada, yada. Now, you have a lot of entrepreneurs saying, I can reach anybody anywhere right now. And if I have a good product and service and it's easy to monetize, I can think beyond you know Cairo I can think about beyond Egypt I can think to the entire Arabic speaking world or I can think about the entire Islamic world which of course is well over a billion people around the earth or I just have something that's so good people are gonna find it one of the stories I told in the book was of a of a neat relatively small company that had come out with HD weather apps and I remember when he pitched the company to me I thought well that's ridiculous I mean there were got to be hundreds of these in the app store and you know I'm not sure why he's doing this and everything else and I went to see what weather app I had on my uh, tablet at the time and was stunned to find that it, the weather app I had was his app. I had no idea that it was 18 engineers in Alexandria, Egypt. I had no idea that it, it came from anything other than some American startup. And yet I had found it and I asked him about it. He said, oh yeah, yeah. He said, you know, 70% of our audience comes from around the world. 35% of it comes from America. We don't market it to anywhere. They just find it in the app store or whatever it is. And, and so... These are just the early days of that ability to have a reach, and I'm not saying that geographic focus doesn't matter and that an entrepreneur early on should not be focused, because they should be, but it does mean that they can become global players much faster and with greater efficacy than before. The final bucket that I described there I, I call the problem solvers. And these are people who really have it in their teeth to solve fundamental structural problems in their backyard that they don't think anybody's going to solve coming from the outside because they understand their backyard better than anyone. They really want to make real ramifications on anything from crime to education, as I described in FM before. You see it in recycling and environmental issues. You see it, I would argue, that the Bitcoin company... A bit Oasis is an example of this because they want more people to have access and the freer ability to move value. Their people really have a bit in their mouth to say, I've got to solve this problem. And by the way, if I do it here, it can be expanded largely. Uh, if I were to add a fourth bucket today, and the book was written three years ago, the new edition came out a year ago, but the, if I were to write a fourth bucket today, it would be about the leapfrogging of new technology. I touch on this in the book about how yes, people is, are yeah. you know, they're leaving challenges to go faster, but but since the first writing of the book, the expanse of things like AI and VR, blockchain we've talked about, is, is happening so rapidly that the, the, the tools that people can leapfrog problems, education, healthcare, and whatever, because of that, I think it's going to be very exciting to watch and going to be quite different in the next three years.
1: In your book, um, you had a two chapters, one of which looking at the role of women in tech in the Middle East, as well as religion. Can you just explain a bit further about how those two things are working, and how maybe people look at them in, in a different ways to, to the actual truth on the ground, what's happening there?
2: In terms of religion,
1: yes, and and women in tech as well.
2: Yeah, so it's so it is a very interesting thing. In a, in a, in some respects, the the my book was. Written for two fundamental audiences, I mean, it's for a Western American audience, obviously published here, and I, I was hoping it would be an inspiration in, in around the world. So, there were a couple of things that I did in the book that that had American audiences in mind because our narrative bias is so strong. And among the narrative bias, obviously, is the whole purpose of the book, which is we just look at the Middle East as one thing. And this book was the goal of it was really to help people realize that there's many other things going on generally, but very specifically something here that's quite hopeful and. A place that can be mutually beneficial, I think, around the world. But as almost corollaries to that narrative, people assume that that, that women are on the side here in the region, and are not engaged in this. People confuse, you know, one's uh, women's inability to drive in Saudi Arabia and think it's happening across the Middle East. And they often look at it through a lens through, you know, the the kind of conflict and violence which is inappropriately and I believe inaccurately associated with Islam, because Islam has nothing to do with what some people have. Co- opted it to be, and yet it does become a dominant part of our of our, our meme, effectively, of what's happening there. So I really dug in, and I could not believe this. In fact, The Economist reported this a couple of years ago, that, that across the Arab world, in tech-enabled startups, somewhere between 25 and 30 percent of these companies are either run by, co-founded by, or helped led by women. Which is a stat. It's not. It's a not. We'll be talking about a larger number in the near future. But by today's standards, it's Silicon, okay, that's got to be two or three times what you would see in Silicon Valley. And no one, I think, in America would understand that. So I wanted to dig in and understand uh, the women and understand what it meant to be in the ecosystem. And I had a very kind of funny, though I think revealing experience in that. That a lot of women that I spoke to were very open and very candid about challenges that are happening in the region by, by being a woman. That, you know, they're often men investors treat them, you know, paternalistically. They're looking for them to come in with a man to pitch the business. Like countless examples of women who showed up to, to raise money, and the first words out of the VC's mouths were, Where's your founder? Because they're expecting a man to be there. And in fact, in Iran, which I don't think I touched on in this book, there was a wonderful woman entrepreneur who finally gave up fighting it and she literally her father knew nothing about computer software at all. She appointed him to be the CEO and he literally would show up at the meetings and say, I'm very happy to be here. Our company is doing X, Y and Z. And I'd now like to introduce you to this woman who can talk about the product more And then he never said a word for the rest of the meeting. And so she just navigated around it. And so you have stories about this and about many stories that women in America, I think, you know, think of a lot about how do you load balance family? How do you load balance issues with your husband? You know, there are other things which are universal as well as not just about the region. But the second group of uh, women I spoke to really got in my grit. I mean, they were they, they listened to me and why I was writing a book and what I wanted to dig in. And they said, look, I'm not going to talk to you if you stick me in a woman's chapter. I'm just not going to do it. I'm an entrepreneur, first and foremost. If you want to talk about my company, I'm happy for you to talk about my company. I'll tell you everything you want to know. But if you're going to do what Americans always do and stick me in some woman's chapter, I'm not going to talk to you. And so, lo and behold, you know, I had a very different conversation with women from that lens, and it was really fascinating to see that duality and dynamic. And I think is a very powerful flavor for uh, the leadership that is developing among women in the Middle East uh, generally. And I think you were, by the way, we're seeing this progressively around the world. It'll be a very, very positive thing. I was deeply touched and impressed by. How important a sense of spirituality and impact were tied often with very often very personal and private views of faith in in people's lives. And there was so much that was said to me by entrepreneurs and investors there that if Americans understood that lens of Islam as opposed to the caricature of some extremists, there'd be incredible empathy, incredible connectedness, and incredible understanding. And and I found great entrepreneurs in America who have their own faith or a sense of spirituality which has been profound for their ability to do the very difficult thing that it is to do a startup. And it's no different in the Middle East. It's from a faith that we in America are not as familiar with. Otherwise, it's completely concurrent and and frankly, I found very inspiring and very moving.
1: So I mean, with that in mind, one of the things I found surprising, I think, when I was looking into um, the region myself was that I read one of your articles that you wrote this January for Recall.net about how tech gurus in Silicon Valley were going to Gaza to mentor startup founders and they were doing so via the Gaza Sky Geeks incubator. Now, what is happening in Gaza making these tech guys leave America to go there and help the founders there start their companies?
2: There are um, a small number, but increasing number of, you know, many of them are friends of mine in Silicon Valley and elsewhere, who are beginning to ask very powerful questions about how progressive universal access to technology and rising economies in growth markets, generally speaking, are coming back about and have the possibility of really changing the world. And in my view, will absolutely change the world in very profound ways. It's early days of them coming as investors and relatively early days of some of them opening operations, but I know right now of some very great companies there that are doing that. I mean, Facebook has an expanded operation there. LinkedIn, as I mentioned, has grown rapidly there. All the major tech players at least have some kind of uh, at least sales operation, if not more, across the world, and therefore that includes places like Dubai and the Middle East. So there's a greater curiosity. They're visiting more. They're listening to some of the stories that I share and other people who come to Silicon Valley. And so there is a very, I'd say, soft, nascent, but important view of this. There's one guy who really stands out, however, over there in this, and really is, uh, I'm just deeply impressed by him, and, and he really shows up, and that's Dave McClure, who's a founder of 500 Startups, which, of course, is a very powerful uh, ecosystem part of the Silicon Valley, and and one of the one of the handful of really successful and well-respected angel investing groups. And he's gone massively global. I mean, they've got now funds that are in Turkey. They've got funds in Latin America. They've got they're just about to do a fund in Africa. And he has been one of the early people to show up to the Middle East repeatedly to understand the market. He's got three people there, they're about to close a new fund there and they're deploying capital. In fact, even before this fund was raised, they've been deploying capital for the last three years or more. I think he's in I don't know, dozens maybe of, of companies from his, his primary fund. And you know, I think that when people come there, two things happen to them. They see there's economic opportunity because there's talent in market, but I think they often become very moved by the impact that is being made overall. And so, uh, Gaza Sky Geeks, which is this amazing, I mean, it's really the first accelerator program in Gaza, of all places, that's been through every possible experience, war and conflict that you can imagine, and keeps coming back. And it keeps coming back because the young people keep coming back. They really want to build a future, even if they're limited in the market reach of what they can build. They want to solve problems like everyone else. They are often self-taught and very good software engineers. And the story is so powerful, so surprising, and so moving. And the talent is so impressive that I think when people learn about it, they really want to do it. And uh, Ile- Ileana Montauk, who was one of the first people to, she was maybe the second person to run it, really made an effort out in Silicon Valley. Mercy Corps has been a big um, kind of anchor and a creator of this. And so they've done very well at pushing the message out uh, across Silicon Valley and whatever. And I think all this converged in opportunities that when people like Dave have been in the region, then they've had an ability to get in there and see it, they've jumped on it, and I think they found it just profoundly moving, because they realize that bottom up, young people are solving real problems. The companies may or may not be investable right now because of the limits on market size for an outside investor, but they can be very successful internally, but more importantly, it's just a new generation saying we're not going to take status quo, we're not going to figure out what the politicians are doing, because there's nothing we can do about it, but we can solve problems in our backyard, and I think that's that's the reason why people have taken note of it, and I know why I've been so impressed by it.
1: And, um, yes, yeah, so one thing i always found quite surprising was when you went to iran and you spoke to young people there about what they're doing and what they're building can you just tell us what is happening in iran and its startup um, scene because obviously you've got the whole issue of the political deal with iran that trump is looking at again but then aside from that what is actually happening in terms of the tech in iran because i guess in the west we tend to have a view of iran as being an enemy or a country where there's conflicts between the America and Iran, but what other side of Iran is happening in terms of the tech and the young people there?
2: I had this funny experience when you know in Iran, in a way, as an American, in particular, as an American, one of my first political memories was the uh, taking of our embassy over there when I was a, you know, a kid. You know, there's a, you almost go there looking to see anti-Americanism. And if you, you look there, you see it. Sometimes I mean, there are historical places where there's been some vandalism associated with it. I actually visited our old, our former embassy, and there were some you know uh, uh, graffiti and and whatever that was um, you know anti-American. But you're startled about how little people are thinking about it anymore. You're startled by how mind-bogglingly warmly you're received by everyone of all. I mean, I literally was in the, the Tehran stock market and an old pensioner came up and tapped me on the shoulder and... Just said wonderful things about America. I crossed the street once and someone drove by and I rolled down their car window and said, We love I must, I must have stuck up like a thor- sore thumb because they, they rolled down <laughs> the windows and shout, shouted, you know, we love Americans, thank you for coming. I was at a tourist site and a bunch of young school kids came running around and wanted to ask a hundred questions. And it was very, very consistent of a warmth that that was, and respect given to us. And frankly, the the probably the best capturing I've seen on it that's worth finding online is Anthony Bourdain, who has this wonderful TV show about cultures through the lens of food and restaurants he did one uh, on iran roughly the the same time i was there the first time there i thought he captured magnificently what i had seen and so firstly the beauty of the place the uh, expansive and remarkable culture and history of it the working of so much of the infrastructure and the quality again of young startups that i saw there uh, would i think shock most americans i mean at the same time as we talked about earlier the bottom-up is the story but the top-down matters greatly you know you're in a police state there's no question about it there's no doubt in my mind that my email was being checked we were very prescribed in places we could go which I think biases my lens a little bit what I saw about the political tensions and, and things that we all see in the media are still very much there and so it's hard to predict how it will play out what is not hard to predict is the mind-boggling caliber of the young people that I met there. And you know some of the world's greatest engineers are there. Uh, some of them, a shocking number of them come to the West to study as well, but the engineering programs in Tehran were great. Over 50% of the engineering students are women, by the way. And the entrepreneurs I met, were, they were like conversations you'd have with an entrepreneur anywhere. I mean, that's all they talked about. with were the same problems, the same opportunities, the same market sizing and uh, analysis, and should I raise money when I raise money? Should... I mean, the conversations were completely... And utterly the same. And what was really intriguing to me was that everyone had access, VPN or whatever, everyone had access to pretty much everything on the internet. So every conversation I had was completely concurrent with conversations I'd have in Silicon Valley. Everyone reads the same things. Every young person I met with a smart device had Coursera app on their mobile device, and we're taking courses on marketing and computer science and that kind of a thing. Everybody was on Snap and Facebook and we're connecting and engaging in that way. And it was just a very, very powerful experience, and in a way it was captured. I was saying before I was driving around looking for anti-American signs, I remember coming around one of the ring road, the ring road in Tehran, and I saw a big, bright side of a building covered, and I thought, okay, this has got to be something propaganda, and I get closer, and it was it was some massive, Apple logo and in Farsi it said think different. And this was put up not by Apple, I think it was just put up by local people because I was told I couldn't. I couldn't report it but i was told there are over six and a half million iphones in iran and obviously apple doesn't sell them there what that means is people go to dubai or they go to istanbul and they buy a bunch of them they sell them for a fortune and people want them because the devices work and it opens up their world in very very powerful ways and and that helps build this sort of sense of connectedness and this belief that they're part of a bigger world, which should bottom up, and certainly the new generation is massively so. But I must tell you, my experience was much broader than just the new generation. It was just amazing people, sort of ready to go, ready to build a great economy, ready to get back to work. There was a real sense of that, and I, I can only pray that uh, government folks understand that top-down, and the batting average and the, the evidence of it is mixed. So, you know, you still put journalists in jail, you still do a lot of these other things which are not good for an open ecosystem, then you worry about what its potential is. But, you know, different people are doing things with different methodologies and we'll just have to see how it plays out.
1: So I'm looking forward and you touched upon this briefly earlier. You said that the Middle East could now go from a place of developing to having leapfrog innovation in mobile, in solar power, and social networks. What made you say that?
2: So one of the things that we all have to think about, and this is true of the Middle East and it's true of other rising emerging growth markets, is for all intents and purposes, these are societies that never knew landlines. They, they literally, they began leapfrog. They, they literally began only with mobile. All their behaviors are mobile-based. All their expectations are mobile-based. And so who are we to think that... Unbelievably sophisticated, well-educated, tenacious entrepreneurial societies who literally only knew one form of technology aren't going to be innovating upon that platform. It's it, To me, it's crazy not to think that that will happen. And some of it might be local and regional, but others of it could potentially be global, the way Waze was, as we described before, before it was acquired by Google. And I think things like mobile, I think now as uh, many of the even oil producing countries like Saudi Arabia, uh, UAE has literally come out, the leader of Dubai has come out and said, we will celebrate the last drop of oil. I mean, they're talking about revenue diversification in a very powerful way as well. And they're going out there and effectively saying we need to be what we've been for oil, we've been for uh, physical infrastructure, like the rise of a great city like Dubai. This, we need to be this for the knowledge economy, because this is the future. This is where we're going to have to be in order to be a great, uh, not only nation, but a great player within our region and around the world. And it's crazy for us to think that in that kind of environment and that kind of understanding with uh, behaviors that never knew the previous and therefore are unencumbered by anything of the previous, we won't see exciting innovation. And as you point out, I think mobile is going to be one place to look energy diversification. There's amazing projects that I see going on uh, in areas of, like that and water desalinization and water, generally speaking, which is, you know, is very important to the region overall. I think local content, because um, in the case of the Arab world, it's something like 14% of the world speak Arabic and less than half of a percent of all content online is in Arabic. I think you will see things like that, which are less about tech innovation and more about market penetration. But, you know, take healthcare as a perfect example. I mean, you've got millions of people who becomes very difficult to reach a doctor, there are millions of people who find health a very personal thing, they're not that comfortable talking about what they have and all of a sudden you could go anywhere in the world because of mobile technology and and get eye tests and get all sorts of tests about cancer and everything else at your fingertips and and get diagnosis privately if you want to use it and and try to take control of your health life. We couldn't talk about that three years ago and so with that, I suspect there's going to be local application and potentially global innovation in places that will surprise us. So that, to me, also makes me hopeful. So um,
1: in your mind, do you think that there are things which could derail or hinder all the progress being made so far by the ecosystem in the region? Or do you Absolutely. think from now on just I mean, is- on up?
2: Look, we're having a very hopeful conversation, which is, I believe it and I feel it, and I, it's because I'm hoping that, that people who listen to it at all will be jarred by it, because the only thing in their mind is the negative, and and so that I want people to think that there, there are multiple uh, parallel narratives going on in richly complex and unique societies that, that we need to process in order to really understand where the world is going. But having said this, it is a very, very tough neighborhood. You know, I think at one level, you look at Iraq, you look at Syria, you look at Libya, these are, these are desperately failed states with unbelievable human suffering, which often the technology has been brought to bear to help out, but, but is, these are almost bigger than that. And so not only are those tragedies in and of themselves, but they can have spreading effects. Obviously, you have so many refugees in Lebanon, for example, and Jordan, that this, this weighs upon societies in, in multiple different ways with unpredictable ramifications. There is nothing to be, to be put aside by that. When I talk about the hopeful side, uh, it's not that I'm saying the people who are worried about the hard things have it wrong. It means that there are more things going on, and if we leverage a little bit more the things of potential, we can actually, hopefully for the long term, prevent or solve some of the harder things. But it's a very tough neighborhood, and it could spread. I do think it's worth remembering that Libya, Iraq, Syria have been, in ways, failed states throughout my lifetime. I mean, they've been a disastrous police states and have been very oppressive of their people, and they've always had trade-offs and, therefore, have not had enormous impact within regional economies, which is why it's more encouraging me to think that the remaining dozens of countries in the Middle East that are trying to find their footing in very difficult times and difficult economic times, and who are having now examples of leaders embracing this, and plenty of examples of young people coming at it bottom up means that, that there are scenarios that we can really work with that, that will be a different narrative overall. But but you can't underestimate that there are difficulties there and they can't be brushed under the carpet or, or dismissed in any way. The second thing I would say is I think the, the clip of uh, the top down to really embrace this and unleash this is always problematic and again I said before too many I think political leaders particularly too many political leaders of a certain age just don't understand the multiplier impact that this will have in creating new economies creating better educated people multiplier uh, impact in job creation they just don't they just don't look at it in that lens of anything often political leaders of a certain generation look at technology as a negative they think that technology will only kill jobs or it will open up transparency to a point where they're held accountable and the irony in that is that if in fact they unleashed some of these problem solvers and things like education and health and criminal activities and what have you, they would actually be helping solve the very problems that they're held accountable for themselves. And so if I were a leader there, if I, when I talk to leaders on there, you have a choice of saying, you know, I'm going to wait a generation to fix education or I will wait a generation to fix education. while, in the meantime, I want to leverage every possible or open up every possible opportunity there is to make it better now. And by the way, if more jobs are created here now, if there are better people prepared for the economy now, that's accruing to everyone's benefit, right? That's everyone's benefit from folks on the ground to larger corporations who want to hire talented people to governments who want to prove that they are actually of service to their to their countries but as you know you know not just in the Middle East but elsewhere there are leadership who don't care about it. You, you really come you come to the conclusion they're not the visionary in that way so that can be a worry for me but that worry is counterbalanced because we have this interesting model that is the UAE and Dubai and I'm very uh, watching carefully what's happening in places like Saudi and, and even Qatar is beginning to have conversations in Kuwait that they've not had before. Jordan has been there. Egypt could be there. And so we're going to have to see. But it's, it's very hard to look into the future. And in fact, it's impossible to look in the future. And I have people who know the Middle East and spend more time in the Middle East than I, who are nowhere near as hopeful as I am. I was in fact with someone last night who said he thinks it's the worst that's been in the Middle East in his lifetime. Uh, And all I can say to him is I, I, I can't assess. I'm not even sure how to weigh something like that. What I can say is we have tools now Universally in people's hands that allow us to look at circumstances so that the next five years will be different than the last five years. We have them. They're in our hands. The what we can do to help unleash it is crystal clear. Whether we do that and understand it and how large the ramifications there will be, I can't predict. But why wouldn't we do this? Why would we not want to get on this and understand it so that there's a chance? in more cases than not, to give a new generation great opportunities and give existing opportunity, uh, generations opportunities to transition and transform themselves to live better lives. And that's why we're all here, I would like to think, in the end.
1: Right. So an in, uh, interview you gave to Bloomberg in 2013, you spoke about an entrepreneur who was building something in Damascus, Syria, even though at the time the war was going on do you know if they are still building something today and where they're based at the moment
2: yeah no i it's a you know syria is a a tragic story at every level in every way and i can't tell you the caliber of talent that i met in syria when i was there in 2011 and a lot of the young people now are, are elsewhere some have gone to lebanon some are in dubai some have not been able to get out of course but the hope of of to still be able to do things, particularly in the last couple of years, has been all but squashed, and that is, a, you know, it's a terrible lesson of not only what a br- brutal regime who makes a decision to to contain its people at every level, first and foremost, physically and 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 brutally in that way, but you know, then on, and also trying to crack down on their spirit, their 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 desire to problem solve and to innovate and just build better lives for themselves, bottom up, is um, a terrible. You know, a terrible circumstance and one to be watched like there are other regimes who have made this decision and there will be others who in the end are more interested in protecting themselves and they are in absolutely building you know a great country for themselves and for the future for their region and beyond and that's why the juxtaposition between the leadership because this takes leadership in the uae and dubai is so profound because you have people There, who literally, you know, they have a minister of happiness. They they are literally getting up in the morning, going to bed at night, saying, what can we do to attract great talent and allow people to learn very, very quickly and to innovate and uh, capture imaginations and create better lives for people not only within their country, but across the Middle East? And I think they're thinking very audaciously about Africa and beyond. They certainly are completely active in trade in places like China and India and Southeast Asia. And so... We're in the early days of this, but the lesson is leaders do make decisions. The top-down does matter. And when leadership makes decisions to unleash this, we're going to see a huge multiplier effect where people are actually solving the very problems that um, leadership is held accountable for solving education, healthcare, that kind of a thing. And when leaders believe they need to play the 20th century game, they need to play the crackdown game, you know, maybe it will work for a time, maybe it will work for too long of a time, but they're missing an opportunity to enter the 21st century that could have benefits for everyone, from the people who are creating to the people who are getting, making their lives better because they have access to new capabilities and, and new ways of thinking, to the large corporations that are looking to hire the best talent to be in the 21st century, and to govern the governments themselves, who for the most part do want to have positive impact, I think, in their country and, um, you know, want to be held accountable for success. But it's not obvious that that will happen everywhere, history is replete with examples of people making the opposite choice, human nature has not changed. I just believe in the end what we need to focus on is that there's this incredible series of tools and capacities and capabilities in people's hands to solve real problems quickly. Almost any problem has a software potential solution to it, and we should do everything we can to support that, unleash it, and at the very least understand it. Because if we understand it, we will realize that the next five years will be very different than the last five years if it's proactively supported.
1: So since publishing your book, have you seen people in the West become more aware about what is happening in the Middle East?
2: I think it's mixed. I think that, you know, in Washington, D.C., very often when I speak to people, they look at me like I'm crazy. And then there are other people who have either been there or or spent some time where this, which are proactively trying to do everything they can to support it, and then it's that's exciting to see. In Silicon Valley, which is for the most part a globally-minded group of people, and immigrants play an enormous role there, and people know what has happened in India and China, and they know that there's universal access to mobile and software, are asking a lot of new questions, but at the same time, so much opportunity, so much talent is within 50 miles of their backyard that that some of the best investors and the best entrepreneurs are building, leveraging that talent to do things maybe most domestically, which is fine, by the way. I mean, there's a lot of argument to be made, that's exactly what they should be doing. But I will say that I'm seeing questions more than I've seen before, and I've seen many more of my friends uh, begin to, to go over there or to meet with people when they come through and, and are quite impressed and, and intrigued by the different narrative, and some of them you know, make it part of their life's mission to be supportive of it overall. I think that, however, there's a much bigger macro trend at play, which Americans in particular are having trouble navigating. And this is particularly true in the tech sector, which is, you know, to make it in world global technology for the past 50 years, has meant fundamentally to make it in the West, and frankly, to make it in the in America. This was the largest market. This was the, some of the best talent in it. Even if you were a hardware player like Sony in the in the 70s or 80s, you were trying to get your hardware here. And if you became a software player, you know, you were solving problems, you know, back at home, but you were hoping that somehow or other you might be able to crack into audiences here if you could do it. And i think when alibaba went public it is a lightning bolt in the shift that's happening in the world more broadly because a lot of my friends think so alibaba you know got very big cuz china's very big and the government supported it and it's just one story of the wealthy taking care of their own and i think they completely misunderstand the essence of what alibaba is which is it is one of the largest tech enabled players on earth that succeeded massively fundamentally without the West at all. Almost none of their revenue comes from the West. Their revenue, of course, comes greatly from China, but their revenue comes from Africa, comes from Southeast Asia, it comes from Asia, it comes from India. They realize that with technology rising in these newer markets, with emerging market middle classes rising, there's now an entirely massive new market in process that is allowing access that makes the question about making in the West not necessarily relevant, because it's still a very powerful market, but meaning that there are alternatives out there that we need to understand. We need to understand it, not just because it's important to be world citizens, but we need to understand it because there's opportunity for us to co-author with incredible talent who understands things that we don't know, who can leverage some of the things that we know very well to build really, really sizable opportunities in these markets. And, you know, there are lots of really amazing young people who are getting that in Silicon Valley and beginning to move towards it but the, it's, not, it's a secondary show. And I think we risk as a country, particularly now in our political situation where we're looking more internally, that we're missing what is gonna be one of the most profound economic shifts in global history. It would be a pity for us to do that.
1: So with that in mind, um, are there any particular startups or individuals you think are worth watching out for in particular over the next few years?
2: Startup individuals in the uh, Middle East? Yes, yeah. Uh, I mean, there there are hundreds of them overall. I mean, when you look, one of the things that I think we often underestimate is we talk a lot about startups and we talk a lot about angel investing and acceleration, all that, that's fine. But the real impact on economy is the scale up. It's when companies go from being, you know, small to really beginning to reach mass scale and have huge impact and success economically and so on. And so, you know, one of my favorite management teams, and I think they're fascinating to watch, are the guys who founded Kareem. Kareem was the first ride-sharing company in the Middle East. Before Uber, it's growing faster than Uber and is a very dominant player from Saudi Arabia to Pakistan. They get up in the morning going to bed at night with their captains, what they call their drivers are all captains, encouraging them to have the highest customer service and to engage as really entrepreneurs themselves. In um, uh, servicing people in these growing economies, where getting to point A to point E, B is not easy and convenient often, and a, and a company like Kareem just has multiple ramifications, which are affordable for a large swath of people as well as business executives. And so Kareem was valued last year by global venture capitalists at over a billion dollars. Like I keep think people get too hyped up over this whole concept of unicorn, but it's a it is a, a, a benchmark. And it's important. And again, Kareem, like Souk, will kick off other entrepreneurs who are prepared to do it. So I think they're fantastic. But there are you know dozens of companies across the Middle East, many of whom now have moved at least business operations to Dubai to have greater efficacy to work. That I think is very exciting. I just went to the STEP conference, which is one of a few startup, but I think one of the greatest startup gatherings in the Middle East. It was just a massive collection of people from around the ecosystem who were there. There must have been 70 companies that I saw, presenting or at booths or I met that a year ago I'd never even heard of. And they're just thinking with a great level of sophistication and they're bringing together some of the best tools. And so I suspect it's going to be an interesting next three to five years.
1: Okay. Well, thank you so much for that, Chris. It's really kind of informative. And if people want to get in touch with you, how best can they do so?
2: I think the best way, usually the easiest way is on LinkedIn. I'm very easily found there. You know, people have reached out to me before and it's been quite helpful to me. And I hope from time to time I'm helpful
1: to them. Okay. Thank you very much for that. Take care now.